0: This podcast is sponsored by the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. Journey through Virginia's rich history and discover hidden treasures. You can learn more at virginiahistory.org.
1: Welcome back everyone to How We Got Here, a look back at Virginia's rich history told one week at a time. I'm Rachel DePampa, an investigative reporter at WWBT, a TV station in Richmond, Virginia. This week we are turning back the clock on June 24th through June 30th. Not only to him. Elvis has almost left the building. And a man who danced into our hearts tapping into a movement to strengthen historically black communities.
0: When he died, he he was penniless. He stepped up to the
1: plate. Also, the day we needed to define derecho.
0: Almost never
2: actually forecast that.
1: And the beginning of the seven days' battles.
2: It's the most consequential, certainly, of all our battlefields around Richmond. Changes the entire war.
1: Let's go back to the 1970s, when disco was all the rage. But June 29, 1976, marked the end of an era here in Richmond. It was the King's final performance in the River City. Elvis Presley performed at the five-year-old Richmond Coliseum to a sold-out crowd. That venue is so old now, they're talking about tearing it down and building something new. A review of that show said he gave out five kisses and 47 scarves to lucky fans that night. If you got one of those scarves, let us know. We wanna talk to you. But by the mid 70s, the aura that was Elvis Presley had started to fade. Years of drug use and weight gain led to a performance that was described by one local writer as quote, a so-so show with a handful of really good segments And one or two glimpses of the power the star used to have and might still have if he hadn't become the victim of his own legend. Ouch. Though that was his last show, it was really considered a comeback of sorts. His iconic shows in Richmond happened two decades prior in the mid-50s. But here's something you probably didn't know. When Elvis first performed in Virginia, it was in May of 1955 at the Norfolk Arena. They spelled his name wrong on the marquee. They spelled Presley with two S's. And he was just a footnote at the time, a newcomer trying to make a name for himself. But the ladies were starting to take notice. A few nights before that performance in Norfolk, the Orlando Sentinel wrote, quote, A real sex boy, as far as the teenage girls are concerned. Again, it was the 50s. Sex boy, already then. The night after the Norfolk show, Elvis was in Richmond to perform at the Mosque Theater, now known as Altria Theater. If you ever get a chance to go to a show there, you really should. This building is unique inside and out. I've seen several there. It's just a really cool place to go. Anyway, reps from RCA Records were there that night, and they took notice. They had breakfast with Presley at the Jefferson Hotel the next day and got the wheels turning. Wheels that would make Elvis a star. The Jefferson Hotel is the most expensive hotel in the city. A few months later, he would record a single called Heartbreak Hotel. And as Don Harrison recently wrote in Virginia Living, nobody would ever misspell his name on a marquee again. (laughs) The King performed at the mosque the following year on June 30th, 1956. It was just before this show that a photographer captured the iconic sultry image of Elvis touching tongues with a woman backstage. The picture is called French Kiss. Google it if you don't know what I'm talking about. It is classic Elvis. The concert at the end of June 1956 was mere days before Elvis would stand behind a microphone in a Nashville studio and record Don't Be Cruel and Hound Dog. As the cliche goes, the rest is history. So even if the King's last show in Richmond, 20 years later in 1976 was so-so, Virginia, much like the rest of the nation, couldn't help but fall in love with Elvis Presley. Let's stick around in the 70s for a moment. On June 30th, 1973, Richmond, a city of monuments, erected its first statue of a black man. amid the stop and go traffic in Jackson Ward as Richmonders rush from one place to the next bill robinson stands still captured in a moment of pure joy and dance the man they call Bo jangles began his dancing career on the streets of richmond around the turn of the 20th century he was most famous for tap dancing with shirley temple in the 1930s But he was also an actor and singer, confined by the racial stereotypes that plagued black performers of his era. Robinson nevertheless became immensely popular around the world. Even today, a simple internet search yields thousands of images of his career.
0: He really took tap dance to a new level. The picture that we see of him on the screen is not the full man.
1: That's Dr. Laurinette Lee. In the halls of the Virginia Historical Society, she was its founding curator of African-American history and is a public historian and teacher. She says he was more than an entertainer, he represented a movement.
0: Though blacks paid taxes, those taxes did not show up in, in improvements in the communities. In
1: 1933, Robinson's hometown was a city divided Segregation split Richmond into separate but unequal halves. While visiting the mostly black neighborhood where he grew up, he saw two children trying to cross a busy intersection to retrieve a ball. There was no stoplight. He gave his own money to have one erected.
0: He stepped up to the plate and gave his money. Um, Though he voiced his concerns, he followed it up, and he was in the position that he could do so.
1: That stoplight is where Robinson's statue stands today. Sculpted in aluminum by Jack Witt and erected by the Astoria Beneficial Club on June 30th, 1973. A monument to a man who died penniless at age 71. Worldwide fame made him a rich man, but when he died, his finances were tapped out. He gave everything while he was living. The year, 1807. The United States was just over 30 years old. But that summer, Richmond, Virginia played host to one of the most important trials in American history. And the key players were equally as impressive. The defendant, Aaron Burr, former vice president, the man known for killing Alexander Hamilton in a duel about three years earlier. You know, Aaron Burr, sir. That's for all you Hamilton fans out there. The force behind the prosecution? Thomas Jefferson, president and author of the Declaration of Independence. He wasn't actually acting as the prosecutor in the case, but was watching closely because he did not like his former vice president. The man with the gavel? None other than Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, John Marshall. June 24, 1807, a former vice president is indicted by a grand jury in Richmond on charges of high misdemeanor and treason, the latter a crime punishable by death. But why? Well, it all started after his term as vice president ended in 1805, when Jefferson dropped him in favor of George Clinton. Burr became a political outcast the moment Alexander Hamilton stopped breathing. The exact details of Burr's scheme have never been solidified, but after Jefferson let him go, he went on to raise a small army on the newly acquired American frontier. He did that to either lead a campaign against Spanish territories in Texas and Mexico, or seize some of the frontier from the U.S. to create a new nation with himself as its leader. Burr had a powerful ally here, General James Wilkinson, one of the highest-ranking officers in the U.S. Army at this time. Wilkinson's story alone could make up an entire episode here. It came to light later on that he was actually a paid agent for the Spanish. But nonetheless, the pair had this plan and the resources thanks to Wilkinson's position in the Army. When it seemed things would go Burr's way, Wilkinson got cold feet. He ended up warning Jefferson of the vast conspiracy out west, and old TJ was mad. He issued a proclamation ordering the arrest of the ringleaders. Burr was captured in 1807 in modern day Alabama and brought to Richmond to stand trial. Burr pleaded not guilty. The trial began in the late summer, and the defense went after the linchpin of the prosecution's case for treason. They argued that the definition of treason in the Constitution required evidence of an overt act. Well, this is a real technicality here. The defense argued on the day listed in the treason indictment, Burr wasn't even there. Chief Justice John Marshall ruled in favor of the defense, and only General Wilkinson testified to Burr's involvement. A stab in the back. The prosecution's case crumbled The jury came back with a verdict, not guilty. Aaron Burr was acquitted. Some would call it a victory, but Burr was, and frankly still is, considered a villain of early America. His reputation was stained in Alexander Hamilton's blood, and Thomas Jefferson wanted to add treason and take his life. A prominent American politician tried for one of the highest crimes of law his life spared because of Chief Justice John Marshall and a jury of his peers. The title of this podcast, How We Got Here, can be interpreted in a lot of different ways. You can go as far back in history as you want, but one moment stands out as a pillar of how we got here. And it happened on June 29th, 1776. This is five days before the widely accepted official Independence Day of July 4, 1776. On June 29, 243 years ago, Virginia declared itself an independent commonwealth, enacting a state constitution, the first colony to do so. Virginia's Fifth Revolutionary Convention met in Williamsburg and was the first in North America to write a constitution. It defined how an independent state government would work, one that owed nothing to King George III across the pond. Written mostly by George Mason, this constitution included the Declaration of Rights that we talked about in episode two. Prior to 1776, there was no legal document that spelled out the limits of power in Virginia. The Revolutionary Convention knew it wanted a weaker chief executive and stronger legislature, but they had no example to draw from. They were flying blind here, trying to organize a brand new government. They got creative and enacted the state constitution. Other colonies followed. It's important to note that no amendments were made in the first constitution because it didn't include an amendment process. Don't worry, that error was corrected in the U.S. Constitution when it was drafted in 1787. Without amendments, we'd be stuck with the original constitution, which didn't allow women to vote and allowed a country with slavery. Remember Patrick Henry from episode one?
0: Give me liberty or give me death.
1: That's a recording of a reenactment of his speech at St. John's Church. He was chosen as the first governor of the new Commonwealth of Virginia that day in 1776. In his inaugural address, he praised delegates for a quote, system of government which you have formed and which is so wisely calculated to secure equal liberty and advance human happiness. Happiness is what it's all about, right? Well, maybe Patrick Henry did teach us a thing or two about liberty, instead of a lesson on mercury poisoning, or death. If you're confused, go back and listen to episode one. Virginia was independent from Britain, but it wasn't a state yet. That wouldn't happen for another 12 years. June 25th, 1788, Virginia becomes the 10th state in the United States. And here's a fun fact for you. We refer to Virginia as the Commonwealth a lot. There are four commonwealths in the U.S. Virginia, Massachusetts, Kentucky, and Pennsylvania. It has no impact on life or law compared to states that are not commonwealths. It was just part of the language in the original state constitutions. So even though we feel special when we say the Commonwealth, it doesn't really mean a thing. Seven years ago this week, Virginians and half the country learned a new weather word, derecho. It was June 29th, 2012.
0: Next thing you know, there was this huge crash. It was the biggest crack I've ever heard in my entire life. I mean, this is ridiculous. You can hear it, it sounded like whistling. It was, it was scary. As soon as it started hailing, I knew it wasn't gonna be good.
1: The violent windstorm started around the Great Lakes in Chicago and headed east, packing a powerful punch across the country. It crossed 10 states. Hardest hit, Ohio, West Virginia, Virginia, Maryland, and Washington, D.C. The June 29th derecho traveled about 600 miles in 10 hours. That's an average speed of 60 miles an hour. At times, there were hurricane force winds with gusts as high as 91 miles an hour. Winds, it was just like howling and just thunderous. You could actually feel the power and hear the weather stripping. Just bam. Thirteen people were killed, mainly by falling trees. The overpowering rumble of chainsaws greeted many the next morning. Dominion Energy unexpectedly stretched to its limit.
0: Just please bear with us. It's just we we're doing what we can as fast as we can and as safe as we can, and that's about all we can do. This is going to be a multi-day restoration effort. This is very much like of hurricane restoration without the benefit of a week to prepare for.
1: It. An estimated 4 million customers lost power around the country. The humming of generators were all you could hear in some neighborhoods for nearly a week. In Virginia, 2 million were in the dark. It's the largest power outage not caused by a hurricane in state history. No AC. <laughs> oh, it's gonna be a hot night. When you don't have it, you really know how much you do miss it. Then there was a heat wave, unbearable 100 plus degree weather in the days that followed. It turned deadly. The heat claimed the lives of 34 people in areas without power. Virginia's governor at the time, Bob McDonnell, declared a state of emergency.
0: This is a, a very dangerous situation for Virginia. Not only is this a very serious uh, event but uh, the next few days in Virginia are going to be very, very difficult.
1: On a radar weather map, the 2012 derecho looks like a wall of weather, a giant system barreling toward the Atlantic.
0: So derecho is a great term, it doesn't come up a lot. It basically is sort of the straight line wind version of a tornado.
1: It moves across yeah. the country.
0: So it has to be, in order to count as a derecho, it has to go 400 miles. So it has to cover a lot of distance is the name of this. And there's a physics professor back in the late 1800s, Gustav Heinrichs, who came up with this. He said, you know, we need to have a name for this weather phenomena. And it caught on. And it's a cool name, too, because tornado is a Spanish word, turning winds, and derecho means straight, you know, in, in Spanish.
1: That's meteorologist Andrew Frieden. You may remember him from episode three. Andrew, you loved the podcast so much, you decided to come back.
0: This is definitely in my list of top 20 podcasts. For real? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, and racing up the charts.
1: Remember, he is one of my favorite weather geeks.
0: But it's cool to talk about weather, I love that.
1: And he says a derecho is exceedingly rare. A lot of times, the Appalachian Mountains protect us here in Virginia. Storms break up as they cross them, maybe reform on the other side. But those mountains are a sort of great barrier until they're not.
0: Rare that a squall line or a frontal boundary will hold together and produce damage along such a long distance. And these derechos, when they happen, can be really nasty.
1: He remembers that day well. He, like nearly every meteorologist in Virginia, thought the storm would break up over the mountains.
0: This was something we thought would be kind of a, a dud, but it held together across the mountains, which is rare, and then went all the way to the coast. It was producing 60-mile-an-hour wind gusts. That's enough to bring down big trees.
1: And I remember the lights flashing and the wind just howling. Yeah, it, was it, was terr- it was terrifying. I remember feeling scared.
0: Yeah, that was appropriate reaction to, you know, really strong thunderstorms. A classic, strong derecho. I mean, it's exactly out of the textbooks. That's what it was.
1: The next few days after every Richmonder went What's a derecho?
0: We all learned a lot, didn't we? You know, we knew what it was, but you almost would never forecast this. And the hype around it has subsided in the seven years since. But every once in a while, when we start talking about, hey, we're going to watch this line coming in from the Midwest, we'll get people who send us notes on social or email and they go, hey, is this going to be a derecho? You almost never actually forecast that. It's so rare.
1: A derecho, a rarity in the weather world.
0: This one held together and along it was severe and damaging, you know, all the way across Virginia. So it was really remarkable.
1: In Virginia, we're worried about disasters like tornadoes, hurricanes. But back in 2012, it was a deceptive derecho that made it across the mountains, turned out the lights, but opened our eyes to yet another fury of Mother Nature. We've been jumping to different centuries on you. And we're going to finish this episode in the 1860s. A series of battles east of Richmond where Robert E. Lee first took command of the Confederate Army.
2: So Lee inherits this situation where you've got 120,000 Union soldiers menacing Richmond, seven miles outside of the city. What do you do? And his decision was to attack in a very bold way.
1: It was June 25th, 1862, the seven days battles were about to begin and Lee wanted to move his men north of the Chickahominy River, basically opening the door to Richmond in an effort to flank Union General George B. McClellan.
2: And the idea was that by attacking McClellan's right flank, not only could they smash them into the swampy Chickahominy River, but they would cut McClellan's supply line. This was a big time gamble. And that's what Lee is looking at uh, just prior to launching the attack.
1: You probably know that voice by now. It's Mike Gorman. He's the historian from the Richmond National Battlefield Park that we first introduced you to back in episode one. For this segment, my producer Colton met him in Mechanicsville and they sat outside, not far from where these battles were taking place 157 years ago. The modern-day Richmond International Airport was the site of a battle on June 25, 1862. In an area called Oak Grove, the Federals attacked the Confederate line.
2: This kind of put the fear of God in Jefferson Davis and Robert Lee because McClellan was attacking that day at exactly the point that was about to be stripped the next day. And so the question is, do we go? Do we go ahead and do this? And Lee convinced the president that yes. We have to do this. And so on June 26, what we now know as the Seven Days Battles jumps off. But it jumps off in a weird way.
1: What was supposed to be a coordinated Confederate attack turned to chaos. Stonewall Jackson was late to the field. A.P. Hill launched an attack on his own. And Hill's men were slaughtered at the Battle of Beaver Dam Creek.
2: So the question now for Lee is, do you want to stay up here? Or do you want to give it up and go south of the, the Chickahominy? And in typical Lee fashion, I mean, if you gave him 12 different options and one of them was attack, he picked attack.
1: And that next attack on June 27th, 1862?
2: It's the most consequential, certainly, of all our battlefields around Richmond. Changes the entire war.
1: Gaines's mill.
2: But things got weird, really weird.
1: Stonewall Jackson got lost and was again late to the field. So guess what A.P. Hill did? He started the attack, and once again, his men were mauled.
2: Jackson's not on the field, everybody's freaking out, Apiel's men are stuck in the middle of the field, and the day is going longer, and every second that ticks by is one more second that McClellan might be able to figure out, hey, there's nobody in front of me, or not many people in front of me, on the south bank of the Chickahominy. So you can imagine the stress and the, the sweat as the shadows get longer, and finally, Stonewall Jackson arrives. There's no chance or no time to set up something clever. The decision is, Everyone assault, everyone attack, everybody into the pool. The afternoon turns to evening on the 27th. You got about 60,000 Confederate soldiers beginning a massive charge. The largest one that Lee ever made.
1: 60,000 men marching in an arc that stretched some two and a half miles wide. It's mind boggling.
2: Imagine the sound of the rebel yell. Imagine seeing them step out. You know, imagine hearing and the very ground shaking as the artillery blasted away. I mean, this is, this is huge.
1: And they found a weak point.
2: It's now the Union line is just evaporating. They're, they're running, trying to get back to the bridges across the Chickahominy now. The Confederates in pursuit. And unfortunately for the Confederates, the sun set before they could cut off that retreat.
1: But not before a devastating loss of life on both sides.
2: Gaines Mill is a bloody affair. We're talking about... 15,000 combined casualties in about six hours. So if you've got sort of a picture of, of combat, maybe from movies like Saving Private Ryan, a D-Day for instance, that's about three times the number of casualties, allied casualties that we had at, at Normandy on D-Day. This is a huge bloody affair, but you know, combine the, the, the actual fighting with the, the sensory experience of the feeling of the heat, the sweat, the blood, the just death, the smells everywhere. So when you came back to these fields after the fight, you know, these once lovely houses now had graves in the garden and used as field hospitals, so there's blood on the floor and the chimneys down because, you know, an artillery round struck. Him. I mean, I really want to give you this impression. This is right outside Richmond. This is, this is places we know. And we could certainly say Lee's won his first victory as Army commander. Sure. But now he's looking at a situation that's even worse because McClellan's army is now united on the south bank of the, of the Chickahominy and he's north of it.
1: You can see why we invited Mike back. He is an amazing storyteller. Back to that story, Richmond was exposed. That night, McClellan would write a letter to President Abraham Lincoln and Secretary of War Edwin M. Stanton. If
2: you ask me, reading the letter that he wrote to Lincoln and Stanton that night, it's pretty clear that he has completely become demoralized, maybe even to the point of a mental breakdown. He concludes it with this amazing pair of sentences. He says, if I save this army now, it is no thanks to you or to any other persons in Washington. You have done your best to sacrifice this army. Wow, right? I mean, he thinks he's been hung out to dry by the president and the secretary of war and it's all up to him and he gives it up. He gives up the campaign and is making for the James River.
1: A union general giving up on an attack that would have changed the war. Sounds familiar. It happened two years later in Petersburg. You heard all about William Smith's decision back in episode two. Anyway.
2: There's really no universe that I can get to in my head that says if McClellan moves forward with his entire force south of the Chickahominy, that Richmond doesn't fall. It's just that simple. And you could easily imagine a situation where Richmond is captured by McClellan in 1862, where Lee looks like the biggest moron in history for opening the door for him. And the war ends, essentially in Virginia, without the Emancipation Proclamation. You know, why do we study these battlefields? It's picking out those contingency points. It could be a completely different America. But isn't that ironic that Lee's victories during the seven days and against McClellan is what pushed the North towards heading in an an abolitionist direction, heading towards the Emancipation Proclamation. That wasn't even in the cards at this time. Remember, the war war aim is to restore the Union, and that's it, just like it had been. And if McClellan had won right here, maybe they would have just done that. We'll never know.
1: Just think about the irony there and how it really shaped this country. It's incredible, and it happened right outside of Richmond. Had Lee lost that battle back in June of 1862,
2: Nobody would think of him as the great Robert E. Lee. There'd be no statue to him on Monument Avenue. There would be, this would be a, a joke, that he'd literally open the door, McClellan walked in, and he's stuck north of Chickahominy. Would almost certainly have to surrender. Nobody would be talking about his great military prowess. One wonders, you know, where is that line between audacity and insanity? Because you could certainly make a case either way right here.
1: For the next few days, there would be battles at Savage's Station and Glendale, or Frazier's Farm. But there were more missteps by Stonewall Jackson, and the battle on June 30th was brutal.
2: But the soldiers that fought there, it was the worst kind of fighting you can imagine. The sun is setting and people are literally punching each other, club muskets and bayonets, and you know, you're just almost praying, let that sun go down.
1: The sun did go down on that hot June night in Virginia. But the seven days battles weren't over yet. The battle at Malvern Hill happened on July 1st, 1862. But that's a story for episode five. Anyone say cliffhanger? This podcast is recorded by WWBT NBC 12 in Richmond, Virginia. Thank you to our mix master, digital director, Kate Albright. And to the man who won the battle to cram six stories into this episode, executive producer, Colton Weekly. Special thanks to Dr. Laurenette Lee, meteorologist, Andrew Frieden, and the extraordinary, Mike Gorman. And to the archives of Memphis TV station, WMC, for those sultry sounds of the king. Next week on episode five, It's the nation's birthday. And a notable death day for many ex-presidents.
2: This is kind of one of the more famous and certainly stranger coincidences in American history.
1: Women take a stand as Virginia votes to secede. Also, the lost colony and naming the new world.
2: No matter what, there was a different America at stake. And the America that we know begins to start to happen because of these seven days' battles
1: and the conclusion of our cliffhanger. If you like this podcast, please support local journalism. You can find stories like this from a little more recent history at NBC12.com. And if you don't mind, rate and review us so others will find us. We'll be back in your life next Monday.